But let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is a rich joy to have your word. But it is also a heavy responsibility to, to teach your word. Your word even instructs us that those who teach will incur a, a stricter judgment. Lord, I pray that you would keep me from saying things that are either in error or even presumptuous. But Lord, I pray that we would hear the, the living and active word stirring in our hearts, calling us to change, calling us to action. Lord, as we look at the passion that Paul had and urgency around the gospel, may it spark a fire and an urgency within us. So help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And I was just thinking about it too when... Um, during Samuel's prayer time, he was talking about the, the brevity of life. It just, at that time, brought to me the, the thought that I know I think I shared in one sermon that, uh, I think it was at age 19, I put my parents' car under a semi-trailer, which I head-butted so well that I still have absolutely no recollection of how, how it all happened. But just to think back that at age 19, I hated Christians, I hated God, and if I had not had the seat back as far as it possibly could go, that could have been my last day without a relationship with God. So you never know what you've got. That's not in the notes. I just thought of it because of Samuel's prayer point. But we've got two girls. You probably know that and you've probably seen them running around, particularly our little ginger ninja. And they're two very different girls. Our eldest, Miller, is extremely, extremely cautious. Kenzie is the complete opposite end of the spectrum. She will try things that are well beyond her ability and even if she thinks it's going to hurt, she just goes gung-ho straight at it anyway. I remember when she was younger, once she started to climb, she got so quickly from ground to standing on dining table quicker than you could actually see it happen. And one time, she fell off the dining table, so from this sort of height onto the floor, and... We're glad she was okay. But partly we thought, that might deter her from doing that again in a hurry. No, it didn't. <laughs> the other day, I just had this thought. I was thinking about the idea that eventually kids hurt themselves. And you know it happens at all, all points in time. But when I started to think, imagine if my kids hurt themselves so badly they had to go to hospital. That kind of really disturbed me. When you learn to ride a bike, it's very rare that you don't have some degree of a fall, at least a graze knee or something, but usually you get back on again and you go because you want to be able to ride a bike. Just like Kenzie, no matter what she hurts herself, she'll just go back straight away and do it again. But it's one thing to go back to something after you've grazed your knees. There's probably very few things that if someone stoned me, and thought that I was in such a bad state that I was dead, that I would return to and do again. It would have to be something that I so deeply valued to think that I could suffer something like that and still go and do it again. This morning as we see Paul's ministry, we see that degree of passion and value that he places on the gospel. 
when a threat and when an actual attempt to take his life happened, he wasn't deterred in any way whatsoever. When you read through the book of Acts, you could come to one of two conclusions. Either these guys are insane, constantly facing all sorts of different persecution beyond anything we would ever imagine, yet continue to do the same thing over and over and over again. Or it may cause us to question, why do I keep shrinking back at the slightest bit of resistance when I'm talking to someone about Jesus? Am I so protective of my own personal comfort? Or is it that I don't value the gospel of my in which Paul did? We're continuing today exactly where we left off last week. Paul had begun what's famously referred to as his first missionary journey. I don't believe he referred that to it in that way himself. And even though Paul back in chapter 9 was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, it was still actually 13 years had passed until a time in, in Syrian Antioch when the church lay aside Paul and Barnabas to send them out on the beginning of this first mission to the Gentiles, to that thing for the gospel to go out to Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria to the end of the world, is finally taking place. We saw initially how they went through Cyprus, teaching in different areas around that island, and we saw the first fully Gentile convert. Like We've seen Cornelius, who was a God-fearer, so he already had some connection with Jewish teaching, but the proconsul there in Cyprus was the first one with no connection to the God of Israel in any way whatsoever. And then last week, we saw Paul's ministry in a synagogue of all places in Antioch in Pisidia. Paul was given an opportunity to speak and he took that opportunity with all that he had showing them how God had been the one achieving his purposes from start to finish and he's the fulfillment of everything they're looking forward to. He told them, this is the God who chose you. This is the God who led you out of Egypt. This is the God who gave you the judge, Sam, judges. This is the God who gave you Samuel. This is the God who gave you Saul. This is the God who gave you the King David. Once he got there, he got to the pinnacle of where all of their hopes were. When is this king going to come from the line of David who's going to be our saviour? And then Paul went to unpack, that king has come and your leaders didn't recognise him. That king was Jesus Christ whom you crucified. Through that message we saw many Jews and Gentiles saved into a relationship with Jesus. They even asked the the apostles, come back and teach this stuff again. And it was all looking like it was just going for a massive expansion until the synagogue leaders aren't too happy that someone else is drawing a crowd bigger than their own. Then they turn on Paul and Barnabas and their teaching. Today we see things that Paul and Barnabas continue to do, how they return, continue to go back, and went back to the church that initially sent them out. 
And there's one thing in common right from the beginning through to the end of this passage. The word is preached and there's a diversity of responses. There's some who respond with rejoicing to the good news of the gospel and there's others who respond with hostility and hatred and violence. But when they go back to the church which sent them out, they boldly proclaim it was worth it. So as we look at Paul's engagement in different areas this morning, we see conversions and death threats in Iconium. We see they are worshipped and then stoned in Lystra. And then they return to strengthen the churches. So firstly, death threats and conversions in Iconium. Even though last week Paul said, that's it, we're going out to the Gentiles. As you read through the remainder of Acts, you'll see that Paul primarily begins most of his ministry by ministering amongst the Jews. And once again in Iconium, he begins with the synagogue and it's presumably he's given an opportunity to speak once again. And again, many Jews and and Greek People who gathered in the synagogue came to trust in Jesus right there and then. Doesn't it make you ponder the sovereignty of God? How Paul, who was once a devout Jew, now who proclaims that all the things he once carried counted valuable as nothing for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ, goes to a synagogue to say that, you know, what you've got there, this isn't the whole story, let me tell you what the truth is, Tell me what. let me tell you what it's all about, and they give him a chance to speak. Like if someone just unknown turned up to this place, and I'm not going to say, do you want to come up and have a go up the front and, and teach the church? But just like previously, back in Antioch, while there were some who came to faith, there were unbelieving Jews who stirred up opposition and tried to distort the things which Paul was teaching them. Now, in my nine years of ministry, I'm glad to say that I haven't quite experienced that yet. The closest was a guy in the previous church had a really strong view about a particular um, way of interpreting the Bible and, and end times and things. And any time I said slightly outside of his framework, he saw it his personal mission to, um, to, to, to spread the truth amongst the rest of the church. But he wasn't, but he wasn't unpleasant in the way he did it. Like any time he engaged with it, it was out of a love because he believed that now he needed to show me the truth and he wanted me to know the truth and he respected my position. But still, when you saw him coming towards you after a sermon, you weren't overly excited. But when people had stirred up hostility against Paul and Barnabas, have a look at their response. So it just says that they've stirred up opposition and, and planning against them. So they remained there a long time. Because there was opposition stood up against them, their decision was in response, we're going to stay long. Because they valued those who had come to the faith and they didn't want to see those people taken away from the wonderful thing they'd just begun to take hold on. They stayed there speaking boldly for the Lord. Not just boldly about the Lord. We're told about how God makes his appeal through us in 2 Corinthians. And the same God who bears witness to the word of his grace. And the same God who granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. 
But from Paul and Barnabas' perspective, the primary thing they did was to proclaim, to proclaim the gospel. The signs and wonders that God granted to be done amongst them was just to confirm, just in the ministry of Jesus, the authority of the message that was being proclaimed. Yesterday we were reminded in Psalm chapter 1 at our baptisms, everyone's in two camps. The Bible speaks of people who are wicked, under judgment, or the righteous who experience God's blessing. Either you're all for God or you're against God. There is no middle ground. And so as the gospel was proclaimed, the city was divided. Some were siding with the apostles, others with the Jews who were hostile against the ministry of the apostles. And then between those who they'd stirred up within the synagogue as well as even their civil rulers, they came up with a plan, we're going to stone this guy. We're going to have Paul stoned. Now it's unlikely, possible, but very unlikely, that anyone's going to be that hostile to anything that you say or do that they plan to have you stoned, to have you taken out. But what if they did? What would you do? If for you speaking about Jesus actually prompted people to want to take your life, would you decide the gospel's not worth it? Would you keep it to yourself? The response of Paul and Barnabas when an attempt was made by the Gentiles and the rulers to mistreat them and stone them, when they learned of it, they fled to Lystra and Derby, cities in Lyconia and to the surrounding country and there they continued to preach the gospel. The very same thing that has caused them hostility everywhere they went, here it's got people wanting to have them stoned and killed, they just go somewhere else and preach the exact same gospel. When I read things like that, I'm just like, God, forgive me. How easily I get discouraged by such a minor little bit of resistance. Yet Paul's life was under threat and he just does the same thing somewhere else. Paul and Barnabas continue because they know the gospel is the only hope for humanity. If everyone is either headed towards judgment for their rebellion against God, how can you hold that back and say that you love the people who live around you? And even later on, he returns, you see in verses 21 to 22, to this exact same city where they planned to have him stoned to go and strengthen the Christians once again. But as he leaves and he heads off to Lystra, the gospel ministry continues and we get another mixed response. That's a pretty mixed response, isn't it? To have people want to worship you and then they want to stain you. That's, you can't go too much polar opposite than that. And the first thing we encounter is a man who was crippled from birth. And you think, this sounds really, really similar to what we've heard before. Remember, after Pentecost, where the beginnings of this thing, where there would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, when they began that ministry within Jerusalem, the first thing we see in Acts chapter 3 is they come across a man who'd been crippled for life. And they said, get up and walk. Peter did. Maybe it's even part of the intentional plan of God, a way of validating exactly what I did amongst the Jews in Jerusalem, I am now doing 
amongst the Gentiles. Paul sees something in this man who's listening to him. He had faith to be healed and he says, get up and walk. And he does. Now this guy has been a cripple from birth. That makes it a pretty hard thing to fake. It's not like a guy who rocked in just this week as part of the, the Paul and Barnabas sideshow. And like he said, well, I can pretend to be crippled for a week. People would have known this guy and have been crippled from, from the moment he was born. And when you see someone like that, get up and walk. You've got no choice but admit something supernatural has happened here. And fairly, they do understand a miracle has taken place. But just like back in Acts chapter 3, they mistake where it has come from and what it's about. When the crowd saw that Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Laconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance of the city brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. They're pretty keen, aren't they? They've seen this miracle. Let's worship these guys. Let's offer sacrifices to them. When you read that, you think, wow, that that escalated pretty quickly, didn't it? And there's a couple of interesting factors that you may not pick up on just reading through the text. The one is you think, Paul's not really one to tolerate false ideas. How did it even get so far that they're starting to bring sacrifices? Well, it says they, they made all these statements about these gods coming to them in a language that Paul didn't speak. He had no idea what they were getting all excited about. It wasn't until he starts seeing some animals and some sacrifice stuff going on that he starts to put it together. But you might also question, where, where is this idea they're associating with Zeus and Hermes? Why are they connecting those things together? Well, the thing was, there was a legendary mythical event that was supposed to have happened in that area in the pre- previous 50 years beforehand. It's recorded in the writings of a guy named Ovid, who spoke about a time when, when Zeus, the god, or their god, came in the form of a human being and came looking for somewhere to stay amongst the people. And the elderly couple who took the, this person in Their house was turned into a temple, they became priests, and everyone who rejected them, their houses were destroyed. So that was the local legend and myth about a God who comes in in the form of ordinary people. So they're thinking, we don't want our house and our stuff to get broken if this is coming all over again. So this makes sense why they're going to all out when they see something miraculous happening amongst Paul and Barnabas. But when Paul sees him coming with sacrifices, he tears his clothes. You see that throughout the Gospels. Anytime when the Jewish leaders hear Jesus say something they believe to be blasphemous, they tear their throats saying, this is blasphemy. And Paul is saying the same, don't sacrifice to us, we're just men. We're just like, like you are. Because Paul rightly understands God alone is worshipped. Paul and Barnabas won't receive worship. When you look in the book of Revelation, even John kneels down before angels who give him a message and they say, stand up, don't worship us. But it's interesting to note too that every time Jesus is worshipped, he doesn't correct them. 
because it is fitting and it's right. But Paul doesn't just say, don't do that. Paul gives them a sermon. It's very different to the one in Acts chapter 3 where, where the audience is a Jewish audience and they're talking about how Jesus is the fulfilment of all of the Old Testament scriptures and hopes. He starts in a very different place. He's got primarily a Gentile audience, clearly pagan, loving their, their religion of Zeus. So he starts with them, why are you doing these things? We're also men with like nature like you and we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Have you ever noticed the Bible never gives a once, this is how you do evangelism in every circumstance? Even Jesus had a massive variety of approaches depending on the circumstances. But whatever means or where their starting point is, they always lead to the same place. Paul here brings to the point of the good news I bring to you, turn from these vain, stupid things you're doing. Turn to the living God who's made everything and has given you everything. There'll always be someone say, they haven't proclaimed the good news. They didn't even use the word repent. Guess what? You don't have to use the word repent in order for it to be an explanation of the gospel, of the good news. Because repentance is just a turning from one thing, whatever it is that you're pursuing as the primary thing in your life, to God. And that's exactly what Paul calls them to. He says, turn from your vain idols. Turn to the living God. Living God who has made himself known in the past and who's now making himself and inviting new people into relationship with him. He hasn't withheld his evidence. He's been available through the things that he has made, through the things they experience, the common graces of rain, food and enjoyment. Paul later speaks of that in his book to the church in Rome, saying, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says, this isn't you. God has always made enough of him known, plainly known to people, that there is a God of eternal power. And now this God is being made known to these people here. Paul's been pretty clear. Don't worship us. Turn from these idols. But it seems they're not particularly deterred. It says, even then, they were reluctant to stop worshipping him. Until you see the little train of all the people that he offended along the way you got the whinges there from Antioch and Iconium who turn up on the scene. Back in Acts chapter 9, we marveled at Paul's enthusiasm that he would travel 190 kilometres 
to try and bring the church to nothing as he went to Damascus. Although, as we know, he encountered Jesus on the way and things went very differently. But these guys have travelled up to 160 kilometres. Even in our days of roads and cars, that, like, I'm not really that keen to drive to Brisbane just to try and to, to say something against a group of people somewhere there. That was the passion that they had. And unlike Paul, who was hindered on his way by Jesus, these guys seemed to get a little bit of traction. They managed to persuade the crowds that once wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas to have them stoned. Now, I'm not one for graphic details, but they stoned him. He didn't incur major injuries, they thought he was dead. They didn't think he was ouchy, didn't think he was a bit sore, they didn't think he'd had enough, they thought his life had ended. Then the disciples gathered around them, whether that means they prayed for them or whether it just means over a period of time they cared for them in their homes, that is the, the greater group of believers. But after whatever that was, Paul gets up and goes to the city where he's just been stoned. And then he goes on to Derby, preaches the same gospel that's given him a threat to be stoned and an actual stoning. And if you look through Paul's ministry, he doesn't just share to evangelise, and he discipled many. He doesn't just want converts, he wants disciples. Does this inspire you? He's experienced far worse than we will ever experience yet still has a passion for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people probably greater than we ever have. Paul's passion for the gospel is not just in reaching converts. As he heads back to the church that sent him out, he goes back and visits the churches where people responded to the gospel to strengthen those Christians. Even those two locations where A, he was stoned, and they planned to stone him. It's hard to comprehend that, isn't it? Going back to a place where you were either were stoned for telling people about Jesus or they had planned on doing it. So high did he value the gospel ministry and those who had come to trust in Jesus that he went straight back there again. It appears he didn't do big public teaching calling people to faith in Christ but strengthening the believers. Because you can imagine when you see this happen to Paul you think, is this worth it? Things are getting tough now that I'm a follower of Jesus. Is this worth following? And if anyone has integrity say it is worth it, it's this man who's been threatened to be stoned, who has been stoned and says, I'm going to keep sharing this gospel. The world needs to hear this. Not only did he encourage them to continue in the faith, we see for the first time he appoints elders in each of those churches. You'll always see every time the Bible speaks about appointing elders, it always speaks of plurality of a number of elders within the churches. They may not have a massive amount of training, but Paul commits them to the Lord, knowing the same Lord who has cared for them in all of their travels can care for the churches through the elders that they have appointed. So even as we think about our own church setting, Samuel's unknown future, Ray's unknown future, we can be 
sure of the fact that as God appoints elders within this place, that he will care for his church. But as they continue back to Antioch, the place where they were first sent out for ministry, he encourages the churches along the way, and when he gets home, they arrive and gather the church together, and they declared all that God had done with them and how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Notice when they come back and they give their missionary port, they don't say, well, this is what Paul and Barnabas did. This is what God did with us. We were just tools in the hands of God and this is what God was pleased to do through us. And specifically that he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Up until now we've seen Cornelius, we've seen the proconsul, we've seen a few Gentiles. Now the doors are flung wide open. The very same spread that we saw in other areas is now happening amongst the Gentile people. Something to praise the Lord for, but as we'll see next week, news that it's not widely received with praise. So what? Who wants to say that they have a passion for gospel ministry that would be comparable to Paul? Any hands? It would take a very bold person to put their hand up now. The same God who set aside Paul and Barnabas has given us the same mission, not necessarily just to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but to take the message of the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we go. We've got the same Holy Spirit living within us that lived within Paul. And because it's all about what God does through his people, the results of that are only limited by what he chooses to do. So why would Paul continue to minister with such zeal when he gets opposed like this? I'll put it to you, probably because he believed the things that we say we believe. Because Paul actually believed that the gospel does change lives. The Paul actually believed that God can work through anybody. The Paul actually believed that when Jesus said, my spirit will be with you to the end of the age, I have all authority, that he will do that. He actually believed that every person will face either eternal life or eternal judgment. When you believe these things, not just theoretically, it's got to change the way in which we live. When you continue to do something that you've been threatened to be stoned, you've been actually stoned, and you go back to it, and that's it. This is important. This is the same gospel that you and I have been entrusted with. Now, I know at times, the first time we hear things like this, we get all guilty and they think, oh, I'm not really well equipped. And I'll certainly encourage you again, the, the beginning of the Sam Chan's evangelism and sceptical world training at the Christian Reformed Church in Glenvale starts day 5pm. Even if you can't make it this week, any of the weeks would be great. Our community group last week decided we're going to do a shorter one because Sam Chan's one goes for 14 weeks. Um, we're doing one called Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out Over Seven Weeks. 25th of March, Nexus Conference is focusing on evangelism. We're doing a live stream of that at our house on March 25th. I'll give you more details of that in the near future. But guess what? People don't get saved just because they know somebody who's had evangelism training. 
People get saved because someone tells them about what God has done in Jesus to deal with the problem of our sin. Sometimes we're so pursuing, I need to know this, I need to know this, I need to know this, and we build ourselves with so much knowledge about sharing the gospel, but we don't do it. What's the good of just knowing about something? If you've come to trust in Jesus, you've probably got it. You've understood it because you've responded to it. I say, if you wait until you feel ready to share the gospel, you will never go. But if you know who goes with you, if you know the power of the gospel, the urgency of the gospel, and what it can do, you will never wait. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, the gospel is still every bit of valuable and urgent as it was then. You are still in the business of calling a people to yourself and using ordinary, everyday people, whether they've ever done an evangelism training course or not. Lord, help us to stop looking at ourselves and, and our weaknesses. Help us to see the wonderful strength and power that is in your gospel and your spirit that works through ordinary, everyday people. We thank you for Paul's passion. We pray that we might just get even just a something of that. Lord, that we might not sit still, comfortably celebrating what you've done to save us, while walking day by day past people who need to be rescued. And Lord, give us boldness, give us confidence. And give us the opportunity to share and encourage one another as we, tell, we share stories of ways that you've used us to call people to yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.